0: to impossible, so I'm going to do my best, Um, but welcome to uh, everybody obviously from Reach Montreal, but Church 21 as well, it's really great, Uh, my name is Dustin, if you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors of Reach Montreal, and uh, I think we're synced up to start a new series today, is that right? You guys don't know, you guys don't know that? Okay. So Reach Montreal, we started it, we did like a little prelude a couple weeks ago to this Rule of Life series um, that we're starting. And Church 21, I think you guys are actually starting it today. So it's great timing for us to sync up and kind of uh, be on the same, in the same lane as we start this series. Um, What we're doing is we're trying to really practice some things over the next several weeks throughout this series. And I know summer is kind of a time to like recalibrate, reevaluate, kind of reset a little bit. And so it's a great time to have a series like this where we're actually reexamining some of our rhythms. And one of the words that we like to use around reach is just like our practices, right? Because everything that we practice is preparation. It's preparing us for something moving forward. And so what we're looking at is some of our spiritual and relational rhythms and practices over the next eight weeks. So that hopefully we can reset a little bit. And then by the fall, we're just killing it in total like Jesus zen mode. Amen? Nobody wants to be like that in the fall? I do. That sounds good. All right, good. So here's the definition of the rule of life that we're using throughout this series that we've been kind of tweaking. Uh, It is a set of practices... Rhythms and relationships to create space for us to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and live all of life with Jesus. Okay, so that's kind of the working definition. Um, I think Pastor Jeff handed out a workbook to most of you. If you didn't get the rule of life workbook, it will be like your companion to scripture over the next eight weeks. Uh, It's on the back table there. If you didn't get one, grab one. We also have them digitally if you live in the future and you'd rather use it on the interwebs, okay? Uh, But that's what we're gonna be doing. And today we're gonna look at the first couple set of practices with the goal of rest. So we're gonna talk about rest. We're gonna look specifically at Sabbath and silence today as we look at the goal of rest, okay? So how many of us are feeling like we need some rest? Yeah, yeah. And it's summertime, so you're supposed to rest a little bit, but sometimes summer can just go by and we end up at the end of summer still very restless. Or we go on vacation and we come back more tired than when we left, which I didn't understand until I became a parent. It's a thing. Like That's, that's reality when you go on vacation as a family. You come back and then as parents you need another vacation away from your vacation, right? What we're looking at is something that not just touches us and and, and is needed for us as followers of Jesus, but also we're looking at a very cultural thing of restlessness. Like we live in a day of restlessness. Some of the experts that have kind of looked at this have actually defined our cultural moment by that word, by restless. That's pretty bad when you have an entire cultural moment or, or entire generational moment defined by restlessness. Millennials are being called the burnout generation. Take that, boomers, Right? But millennials are being called the burnout generation with an alarming amount of physical and emotional exhaustion, tons of mental and emotional health challenges, and relational strain. I saw a quote from one doctor from Massachusetts say this, listen, in the past few years, I've observed an epidemic of sorts, patient after patient suffering from the same condition. Symptoms include fatigue, irritability, insomnia, anxiety, headaches, heartburn, bowel disturbances, back pain, and weight gain. There are no blood tests or x-rays diagnostic of this condition, and yet it's very easy to recognize. This condition is excessive busyness and restlessness. That defines what's happening to our bodies What's happening to our minds culturally and our bodies right now is that kind of restlessness. Now why? Well, I think there's multiple layers and we can't explore all of them. I think there's a few things. I think we have a cultural message of workaholism, busyness, and multitasking. Right, And I know some of you who are like to like stream a show, listen to a podcast, and fold laundry at the same time. None of those things are getting done well. Okay, They're just not. Multitasking is like the myth of our age. That we can be more productive if we do more things at the same time. But everything about that shows us actually that's not the case at all. We can only focus on one thing at a time. But we have this overwhelming pressure of we can't stop, we can't slow down. And when we do, we just feel anxious or guilty about it. Anyone? Like you're sitting in a room by yourself feeling like, I should do something, right? And we're just kind of like overwhelmed, overflown by this kind of anxiety. Another layer to this, I think, is escapism. We live in a very decadent age. There's so many things to enjoy. There really are. Like an alarming amount of things that we can consume and enjoy. Now is that bad in and of itself? Of course not. That's great. That's awesome. But when the escapism is the reason why we pursue those things and look for pleasure and, and, and decadence in those things, it really does end up taking a toll. So culturally we know this. We're overeating, we're over-drinking, we're over-or-undersleeping, we're binge-watching, we're doom-scrolling, right? We're stuck in like a negative feedback loop that, of behaviors and habits that we know probably aren't good, but we don't really know how we got there. Anyone? It's like, I don't really know how I got into this thing and why I do this or why every 15 seconds I just grab my phone and start doing this. I'm just like, what? Like, throw this, throw this thing in the trash. Like, what just happened, right? And we don't even know why we ended up in those things. But these are the habits that culturally have formed us. And so a series like this allows us to re-examine our habits and ask the question, why? Why is that there? Why do I kind of have that tip to go and do that or scroll that or consume that and how to reevaluate those things, Third, the third layer, and then we'll move on, is I think that we are definitely sleeping less and working more. And not working more in the sense of like doing good work, we're just doing more, right? It doesn't mean you're doing like good things, it just means you're doing more and we're sleeping less. And that's just true, there's crazy stats on how little we're sleeping compared to 100 years ago, it's insane, right? So no wonder why we're anxious and tired by that. But I think that this is all held up by a sermon preached in our culture of progress, of a progressive sermon in our cultural kind of like teleprompter, where the pursuit of more and better is always the end goal. We always need more, newer, and better. And that cultural sermon kind of holds up, I think, this crazy drive for productivity and busyness, which is why we're so anxious. Because there's an expectation kind of floating around in the ether out there of like, well, but if you're not producing, are you even human, right? If you're not doing, you can't even be a human. And so we feel this pressure. But here's what's happened. Here's what's happened. If we're always looking for that next season, if we're always looking for that next thing that is gonna satisfy us, what happens is we defer hope. And when we defer hope, we defer rest. And so all of us, Christian or not, follower of Jesus or not, regardless of what our religious affiliation is, we all have a target that we think, if we just get to that point, that will give us rest. Amen? That will fulfill me. That will satisfy me. But if we're always only working towards the next thing, we defer hope to that next season. And guess what? We defer rest too. So no wonder we're restless. So culturally, that's just us kind of figuring out the landscape of what's actually happening. And then trying to understand what Jesus invites us to. Ronald Rollheiser in his book, The Holy Longing, said this about our age. We are distracting ourselves into a spiritual oblivion. We are more busy than bad. That's important. More distracted than non-spiritual. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are the major blocks today within our spiritual lives. I think he's exactly right. And this adds extra weight to Jesus' invitation to find rest in him, doesn't it? That if that's our default condition, our default condition is to drift. And we did this two weeks ago at REACH, we looked at that text, Matthew 11, of Jesus inviting us to not just come and learn things in our head, right? Jesus didn't just show up with like, he wasn't just religious beliefs with some skin on, he said, come with me. Like, come with me, walk after me, live after me, and I will what? Give you rest right so there's practices there's rhythms there's a lifestyle to be lived in Christ that will actually give us rest in Christ amen we got to be more excited than that yeah 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 so Matthew 11 that's that's what we see the invitation to follow after Jesus and Jesus is saying if you follow after me I will not defer rest I will not defer hope anymore because it's in me and I have it for you and it's available and that's good news and that's the gospel So, what we'll do today is we're going to look at some of the implications of that invitation to find rest. That Jesus actually invites us to build our lives on him. Not need to know all of the things. Not need to dot every I and cross every T. But just to follow after him. And he says, then I'll take care of everything. I'll take care of the questions. I'll take care of some of the tensions you're feeling. I'll take care of some of that angst that is still in you. Some of the trauma that you still need healed. Come with me and I will deal with all of that. That's the good news. But I want to look at a specific text in Hebrews 4 as a bit of a warning to us, okay? Now this text, if you know anything about the book of Hebrews, it's really trying to synthesize the old covenant and the new covenant, right? So it's kind of talking about like, what about the priests, and what about the sacrifices, and what about the law? And, and the author of Hebrews is just showing us, well, all of this comes together, points to, and culminates in Jesus Christ, Right? And then in chapter 4, he's actually unpacking the failure of the Exodus generation, okay? So he's going way back. He's talking about the Exodus generation saying they were slaves, they were freed and given rest, but they failed to enter that rest. Okay, so watch these verses. Hebrews 4 verse 9. Therefore, a Sabbath rest still remains for God's people. Is that good news? Yeah, yeah. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. Let us then, this is crazy, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Pause. That last verse, we always just kind of pluck it out and use it as a verse about the Bible. Anybody been there? She's like that's the verse we use to say, oh, but the Bible is inspired. Amen, it is. But do you see the context of that verse? That verse is talking about the word of God and us either entering or not entering into the rest that is available to us, okay? So here's the warning. Could it be that we show how much we actually trust what God says by how well we rest? That's the caution. This isn't just like a theological verse to be plucked out to say something about scripture. This is actually a statement about how well rested we are Shows how much we actually trust what God says. That's crazy. That's a wild connection. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's saying the Exodus generation failed to do that, failed to rest in what God had already said and done. Right, so you remember the order. God doesn't drop the 10 commandments into Egypt and say, do those and then I'll save you. What does he do? He shows up, he saves them, and then he says, here are 10 ways to stay free to stay in relationship with me. And that's what Hebrews is unpacking here. But notice that the author doesn't stop right there at the Exodus generation. What does the author point to? Creation. goes all the way back to say, just like God rested, right? Now, that's pretty crazy. If we know anything about the Genesis story, I know we've like made Genesis about like dinosaurs and how old the earth is. I don't know why we've done that when there's so many better things actually in the text, right? But in Genesis 1 through 3, we have this amazing kind of DNA, genetic code about all things and and purpose and identity and destiny and value. And then we have the, the star of the show in Genesis 1 through 3. And who is it? It's this function assigning, order creating God who puts everything where it's supposed to be and tells everything what it's supposed to do. That's the point of the Genesis narrative. We get the raw kind of genetic code for human beings and human purpose and identity and destiny and it starts with who not us not with dinosaurs but it starts with God it starts with God speaking acting and assigning function and that function leads what to beauty to things being what does he say good this is good this is beautiful this is awesome Look, 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 when there's order, when things are right, done in the right way, rule of life, right? When we're living in the right rule of life, things are good. Things are beautiful. And then God finishes all that, and what does he do? He rests. God rests. Genesis 2 says, so the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them... Was completed. So on the seventh day, God had finished his work and he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day, the Sabbath, and he declared it holy. So what's going on there? Well, if you notice how strange that is, the all sufficient, all knowing, all powerful God, non sleeping God rests, okay, at the end of creation. What is going on there? Why? Well, not because he was tired, not because he needed a break, not because he tore his meniscus and needed a stool, okay? but because he finished doing what he was going to do in order for beauty and life to flourish. And then he changed the whole tune and said, now I'm gonna put image bearers right there in the middle of the garden to go and work well and rest well and be fruitful and multiply. And I think the reason why the creation narrative finishes with God resting is because it is a huge arrow, a big flashing arrow pointing all of us who are tired and restless, and telling us that we will find rest in nothing else other than the fully rested God. That's the story of creation. That's the invitation of creation. Now here's what's cool though. The ancient Near Eastern myths, remember, remember when Genesis was written, right? What it wasn't written to us, but it was written for us, right? but it was written to a very different cultural context. In the ancient Near East, there was all sorts of other myths floating around for how creation happened. And what happened is there was uh, chaos and then order was brought on by gods or a god. And then they built a temple to actually mark their rule over creation, right? Their order over creation. But God of scripture doesn't do that. He doesn't build a temple. He doesn't say, build me a place where I can live in. He says the entire thing is where I dwell. And then he institutes the Sabbath rest as the point of all creation to say, I'm available. Come rest in me. Come have a relationship with me and enjoy my rule over creation. Enjoy the order and beauty of creation. So that's pretty cool. But if we know anything about the story, does humanity rest? No, they rebel. We don't rest, we rebel. And what happens is, as the story goes on, humanity rebels against resting in God and instead pursues what? Rest apart from God. Believes the lie that rest is not to be found in God, that he's not good, right? That he's not out for our good. And so, if we look at the human condition and the restlessness of our cultural moment, we've actually been resisting true rest since the garden, Now, it's come to a boiling point in our culture because of all these other things that we've just looked at, but if you actually look, the condition of sin, the root of sin is looking for rest in something apart from God. That's what sin does to us. Actually pursues rest apart from God. It pursues the lie of be like God, be limitless, be all-sufficient. God's not good, he can't be trusted, he's not knowable, or he's just not there. And if he is there, he definitely doesn't care. So, go find rest elsewhere. It's the exact same narrative from the garden that we're seeing kind of just projected across our culture. And if you follow the whole arc of the Bible, the whole narrative of Scripture is of people wandering in the desert and in exile trying to find rest. Trying to get home. They're homesick. They're trying to find water, right? They're tired because they haven't rested in God. And that's the whole narrative arc of Scripture. So it's as if all of scripture from the beginning to the end, church, is screaming at us, if you don't practice rest in God, you will wander. You will be in exile. You will be forced to wander if you don't rest. And that's what Sabbath means, right? The Hebrew word for Sabbath is to to stop, to cease, to, to stop working. To stop wanting, to stop wishing, to stop worrying, to stop scrolling, to stop texting, right? It's to stop. It's to be still. But the other way that the Hebrew shows up in the Old Testament is that it also means delight. So Sabbath rest is stop in order to delight. Stop in order to enjoy, right? So that's what we see over scripture. So Sabbath rest is for delighting. It's not just for stopping, but it's also for enjoying. And we see that all throughout scripture. So God weaves this in. He weaves Sabbath in right from the beginning. Right into the fabric of creation. To show us as human beings who are not limitless, that we will short circuit if we ignore Sabbath rest. That if we work against the grain of how God created us, we will short circuit and break down at some point. And it's crazy in the creation narrative, the only thing called holy is Sabbath. That's pretty wild. Like, all the pictures coming out right now of, like, all the galaxies that they're taking pictures of, which, by the way, definitely aliens, like, for sure. If you had any doubt, now you know, aliens for sure. But you see those pictures, you're like, whoa, like, holy, right? Like, just, like, the glory of those things, you're just like, man, creation's crazy. But the only thing in the creation narrative called holy is Sabbath. That's pretty crazy. Like, God is just, like, literally putting it on a pedestal saying, don't ignore this or you will break down. Don't ignore that you were created for me to to have life in me, or you will break down. John Walton, an Old Testament scholar, in his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1 and 2, says this. God is asking us to recognize that he is at the controls and not us. When we rest on the Sabbath, we recognize him as the author of order and the one who brings rest and stability to our lives and world. We take our hands off the controls of our lives and acknowledge him as the one who is in control. And that's what the invitation has been since our creation. Now leave the garden for a second and fast forward if you know the story throughout scripture and you get to the exodus, okay? So speaking of Hebrews kind of critiquing the exodus generation, God actually doesn't just like say, hey, this is important, what does he do? He commands rest, So he goes from saying, you were created for it to commanding it, right? So in the Ten Commandments, Sabbath rest. Sabbath is the fourth commandment. And I think it's the fourth commandment because it's how we practice the first three. If you look at how they're put together, you look at the first three commandments, have no other gods before me. Don't make or worship any idols and don't misuse the the true Lord's name in vain. I think Sabbath is how we actually practice those three. How we keep God in his godness. How we keep God in his holiness, his set apartness, And what's really wild, you can go this week and just read the Ten Commandments again. It's the only commandment that gets an explanation. Everything else is just like, do this. Just trust me. But then Sabbath gets this explanation of to, like, and here's why. Here's why you should really practice this thing. And then, last little hyperlink forward, in Deuteronomy, when the law is retold again, where Moses is like, guys, you missed it the first time, let me just tell you again, right? Which is what Deuteronomy means, I don't know if you knew that, geeky detail, it means second law, okay? Now you can go tell somebody this week and sound like amazingly smart. But later in Deuteronomy 5, listen to what Moses reminds Israel. Observe the Sabbath, not remember it, observe it remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty, strong hand. Therefore, keep the Sabbath day. That's pretty crazy that that Moses would take this, like the scripture would actually take this and say, not only were you created for it and not only did God command it, but you are actually redeemed for it, right? So notice what Deuteronomy just did. It didn't root it in creation, it rooted it in redemption. It was like you were saved to rest. Like God redeemed you so that you can rest. You're free, so live free. That's the good news. So you just see the gospel all throughout scripture. We don't have to wait for Jesus or the New Testament to get to the gospel, amen? That that's the gospel right there. That's the good news of who God is and what we're invited into. And that's what Sabbath does for us. It allows us to slow, stop, rest be quiet, and I actually think that it's an amazing gift that we see to our soul because it's God's way of dethroning us. Sabbath is God's way of dethroning us. It's inviting us to step down from, like John Walton said, the controls, step down from the throne of our lives and to trust him, trust his control, trust his plan, trust his character. So you see a reversal in Sabbath. You see where sin actually enthrones self. Sabbath comes along. Rest comes along and re-enthrones God and puts us back in our place. It allows us to be mere mortals. Isn't that good news? We can just rest and be mortal and be like, oh, I'm not self-sufficient. I'm not in control. There's things outside of my control. And if I was in control, this would be a disaster. That big red button of just like destroy the world, right? Like, I'm so glad I'm not. So so now you're full of adoration. You get to actually be filled with gratitude of the fact that I'm not in control of all things and I don't need to be. That that pressure of performance, that weight that just kind of hangs around in our culture of like do more, be something, become all that you can be, do whatever you put your mind to, that we can actually step back and be like, no, no, that's not what I was created for. I I, I can rest. And it allows us to re-enthrone God. All right, so... That's a little kind of biblical theology unpacking of this. But this takes practice, amen? It takes practice. It's not our default. So of course it's going to be. So we have to work against the grain of our own kind of heart and our own kind of thoughts. So in this series, we want to make sure that we're practicing Sabbath rest. That we're intentionally making it a weekly discipline. And we're committing ourselves to. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. But listen, a rule of life is not the same as rules that leads to life, right? A rule of life, are, rules are there to protect the freedom that we have, right? And so we talked a little bit about freedom and that kind of thing. So don't just hear this and be like, oh, I'll keep the Sabbath and then my life will just be like, yeah, this is awesome, my life is amazing, right? And, and, and it doesn't actually mean like, like, oh, I gotta keep it like this or like that because what happens is you can take the rule of life and you can turn it into rules and end up in legalism and still not have life, right? Legalistic people are grumpy. Okay, so don't become, you don't need to be grumpy, all right? Rest should make us like extremely happy, okay? Not, yeah, I'm obeying the Sabbath. Yeah, I'm fasting. Yeah, I'm in prayer right now. Okay, that's not what these are for. That's not what these spiritual practices are for, okay? But it does take practice. It definitely take practice. So notice what Hebrews four eleven said there. Make every effort to enter that rest. Doesn't that seem kind of like a paradox? Make every effort to enter rest. You're like, wait, but I thought I was resting, I thought my effort stopped. But notice, notice the order there. Is you actually have to make that effort though. You have to carve it out so that we can experience that rest. We have to be intentionally moving towards this. And I think it's, it takes practice because it's actually an act of resistance against our default. Right? Alright, so three things that we can apply and kind of look at as we go this week. Number one, Sabbath rest is commanded. Okay, brothers and sisters, listen. Things that are commanded don't need to be prayed about, or thought about, or meditated on. They need to be obeyed. Amen? They need to be obeyed. And not, 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 non, not people who are not following Jesus. I know we're really good at that. Is look how, look how they're living. Look what they're doing. They should just obey scripture. So why don't we start with us? Amen? Like why don't we start with obedience? Let's do that. And then be like the light to the world, right? Let's be the salt of the earth. Let's do that first and not worry about whether other people are obeying a scripture that they don't even believe in yet. Amen? So, so, so if God commands rest, brothers and sisters, we don't need to think about it. We don't need to pontificate on it. We don't have to meditate or do more studies about it. We need to obey it. Because Jesus says, come and follow me, and if, if you love me, what? You will keep my commandments. You will obey me. You will come with me and follow after me. And he commands rest. Now, isn't that good news, though? Like, this God could command lots of things, but he actually commands rest. Like, that's a pretty sweet God. Like, like you, oh, number one, first thing I made you for, rest. You're like, what? but don't I have to do anything or, like, be a good person? No, no, just come with me and rest. It's like, wow, that's amazing like like that just again the adoration and the worship that can come out but we need to make it a, a weekly non-negotiable right so what does that look like for you i don't know i don't know your schedule i don't know your 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 work life your work life balance any of that but what is important about sabbath is that you actually set time aside for focused sabbath rest you turn stuff off you put stuff away 24 hours if you can't do 24 hours start with like 4 right Some of you start with like 20 minutes and you'll start to see your eye twitch start going, right, you're starting to short circuit, all right, I need to fold laundry. You're like, no, I don't, right? Okay, but just start with something though and watch what happens to your heart. It's amazing, as a family, uh, my son is, is, our son is nine, our daughter is seven. For the last five years or so, we've been very intentional about practicing Sabbath. And so Friday nights at sundown, Everything goes away and goes off and we start Sabbath and we actually have a 24-hour period where we're doing analog things, digital things are going away, we're dancing, we're singing, we're playing board games, we're eating, we're walking, we're swimming, like we're just enjoying each other and being together, okay? But that took time, especially with kids, right? We had to start with that 20 minutes of like, just be quiet now, right? But you start to practice it and all of a sudden you realize, wow, I really enjoy this. And not only do I enjoy this, but I need it. I need it. This is good for me. This is good for my soul. And as you start to practice it, just re- remember, not all relaxing activities are restful. Anyone? Not all relaxing activities are restful. We got to be careful, okay? Four hours of Netflix or video games or the doubleheader game that we're watching or scrolling through our socials might be relaxing, but they're certainly not necessarily restful. Amen? Amen? So we gotta make sure we pick activities that are actually restful, that we actually start to see life kind of flourish from within and and to come outside of us as we practice Sabbath. But Sabbath doesn't mean being passive from everything. Okay, so it doesn't mean just sit in a room by yourself for 24 hours and do nothing. That's called boredom. That's called insanity, okay, not Sabbath rest. But what Sabbath rest does mean is that it means being actively focused on the most important things. Stopping and delighting, okay? So I don't know what that is for you. Do what works for you. Garden, walk, journal, read, drink copious amounts of caffeinated beverages or fermented fruit drinks or sing or board games or whatever it is, but prioritize those activities for Sabbath. That's number one. Number two, Sabbath rest is for us, but it is not about us. Sabbath rest is for us, but it's not about us. That's an important distinction because when Jesus teaches on the Sabbath, every time he talks about it, Mark 2, 27 is one example, where he says Sabbath was made for what? Man, not man for the Sabbath. Meaning it's for us, but it's not about us. Why? Because it's holy unto the Lord. Meaning Sabbath is for us, but it's about God. Amen? Amen. It's for us, but it's about God. It's about delighting in him. It's not about gorging yourself with vegetated relaxation and then just being like, mm, that was a great Sabbath, right? That's different, okay? So Sabbath is 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 for us, but it's about God. So it's not just a day off, right? A day off is different, why? Because it's usually dedicated to who? Me, like I get a day off, right? But Sabbath is actually a day off to enjoy and delight in who God is and what he is doing. So what does that look like for you? I don't know. But the goal is a 24-hour period to stop, to rest, to surrender control, and intentionally focus on God being fully in control. And church, I think this is exactly why if you look in the New Testament, almost every time Jesus talks about the Sabbath, he does most of his healings on the Sabbath. Two reasons. Number one, to tick off all the religious people, because they've decided what the Sabbath is, right, and what it isn't. But the second reason I think that Jesus does most of his healing on the Sabbath is that it shows us that certain types of healing only comes through resting. I think there's a certain type of healing for us, for our mind, for our thoughts, for our hearts, for our appetites that only happens while we rest. And I think that's exactly why. So it's not about us, but it is for us. And the invitation is that as we follow Jesus and practice it, that we will actually find healing and rest for our soul. Third and finally, Sabbath rest creates space for silence and solitude. Often the Bible will connect an absence of noise with the presence of God. If you just track that theme throughout Scripture, the absence of noise... And the presence of God often go together. A few examples, Psalm 37, 7. Be still before the Lord, which actually means in Hebrew, it's actually be idle. Like, so like, stop. So think Sabbath, right? It's like, be still, stop, and wait patiently for him. Psalm 46, 10. Be still and know what? Most of us know this one, that I am God. Isn't that interesting? That it's in the stillness. It's in the stopping that we actually get to know who God is. That God's going to show us something of himself when we still ourselves, When we stop, when we rest. My favorite is probably Elijah, the prophet in 1 Kings 19. Where God's voice, he's like, he's like, God, I need to hear from you. Where are you? Like, hurry up and save me, right? But God's voice is not in the wind, like Job. He's not in the earthquake, like Sinai. He's not in the fire, like with Moses. But he's in what? The still, small voice. In Hebrew, that's a a thin silence. That God's voice is in a thin silence. I think that we would probably hear God's voice more clearly in community together and individually alone if we were more quiet. Because I think it's in silence that we're actually able to see how restless or restful we actually are. Blaise Pascal said, most of humanity's problems can be solved if a person would just sit alone in a room in solitude. And I think that's true. Because you start to see things come up in your heart, out of your mind. You start to see things come out of you. And I think that it's in silence that we're actually invited to see who God is and to see who we are. Because in silence, honestly, we can be pretty impressive, right? Like in public, we can like manipulate things with words and achievements and accolades. Like, in silence and solitude by yourself, you have no one else to impress. Like, and you already know you're not impressive, amen? Like, when we're honest, at least. Like, maybe you portray how awesome you are in public, but when you actually get to your kind of quiet silence alone and in solitude, and you're honest with yourself, you're not impressed with yourself. You're not impressed with your thought world and your heart world and your desires. And in silence and solitude... There's no one left to impress. And it's just you alone and God. And then emotions start to rush in, right? Good and bad. Fears, security, hurt, joy, appreciation. They just start to flood. And then you have an opportunity. You can like, well, block it out and go back to busyness or streaming or scrolling. Or you can sit with them and actually allow God, invite God into those things to start to process some of what he is already exposing in your heart. So, if you think about your average week, not like your awesome week where you nailed all your spiritual disciplines, okay? gotta be careful not to take like your best week of like, I am a giant for Jesus, okay? But take like your normal week. How much quiet do you actually get? Intentionally. Time alone with your thoughts to actually reflect, to detach from everything that demands your attention and give your full attention to God. Jesus prioritized the practice of quiet and silence and solitude in some of his most demanding seasons of ministry. And I think that's really telling. Often you'll see it, I won't share any examples, but often you'll see it throughout the Gospels where there'll be something really busy happening. People are getting saved, healed, baptisms are happening. The disciples are being sent out on short-term mission trips and they're coming back and they're like, Jesus, we got to go and do more of this. And he's just like, hop in the boat, we're going to go over here now. Right? It's like, what? No, no, like there's more work to do. And Jesus is like, we're going to go and be quiet now. There's so many times in the black letters of the New Testament where the disciples will just like wake up and Jesus will be gone. Right? And they're just like, it's breakfast time, Jesus. Where are you? And they go find him and he's in the woods somewhere praying alone. Why? Well, because he knows that the character in private is what actually produces fruit in public. And we have it backwards, church. We flex and put on and manicure ourselves and airbrush ourselves in public. But when we actually are honest with ourselves and get back into the quieting silence of solitude, we see who we really are. And that we can't pretend anymore. But here's the good news, we don't need to. That God actually pursues us there. That he says, you don't need to be impressive. <laughs> Let's just be quiet, sit with me and, and, and I'll give you rest. Allow those emotions to come out, whatever they are, and let's process them. I'm here, I'm present. Be still and know that I'm God, not you, is what that invitation is. So I think, church, today we need some of, some of that more than ever. In our culture of constant noise and distraction and pings that are really desensitizing us and dulling us, and honestly, they're actually rewiring our neurochemistry, which is insane, right? We do almost anything to avoid silence. I do, right? It's like a nervous tick that I have. Right, like, you're, like in the kitchen by yourself about to cook dinner or whatever and then you're like, Alexa, play dinner jazz. Right, no, just me, okay. But what if like cooking was an opportunity for me to be in silence, in quiet with the Lord, right? Like we do it all the time, we just fill, we just fill spaces with noise. And God is saying, allow me to actually be present in the silence, allow me to be present in the quiet. But I think this is hard for us. I think it's so hard because we're no longer in control of what happens in that space. So we use words and devices and posts and achievements and giftings all day, every day to control things, right? To manage situations, to troubleshoot things. Some of your workplaces, it's like you're just troubleshooting all day. You're the man or the woman, like you're just killing it, right? But silence and solitude allows us not to need to perform anymore, to achieve anything, to actually just sit and to learn who we are. So could it be that God speaks louder and is more present in silence than we think? Could it be that we pursue the presence of noise to maybe keep us from hearing the things that might be in us? Could it be that we avoid silence because we're afraid of that what we portray in public isn't actually real? That's the invitation. Zach Eswine in his book Imperfect Pastor, which I read like every year, (laughs) it says this, Quiet is a means of God's grace. Within it, God shows us our inner poverty and misguided ambitions. He has waited patiently with a quiet heart while we've brewed our lives into storm and froth, constantly interrupting him. I love that. And I think that's exactly the invitation. So, what if the church actually lived and practiced life as a countercultural community of well-rested people? What if what we portrayed in public was powered by silence and quiet with God in private? What would our communities look like? What would our churches look like? What would our relationships look like? That's one of the practices that we want to start today. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna respond, we're gonna sing, we're gonna pray, we're gonna worship, but... I don't want us to just kind of move on to the next thing. I know we got kids in the room, so we won't have much quiet, but that doesn't mean it stops us from actually reflecting and meditating and sitting with what we've heard. St. Augustine, the archbishop from North Africa, famously said that, God, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So today as we respond, let's, let's respond to Jesus's invitation that he's the Lord of the Sabbath and that Sabbath was made for us but about him and that the invitation is nothing less than finding true rest in him. We'll take a minute, we'll just be quiet and then I'll pray for us to that end. Father, as we respond together, even as we sit in our seats or stand where we are, that we would just be grounded in the moment, in the quiet of our hearts, that you would silence our minds and our hearts, our thoughts and our desires, so that we may hear you. We're so thankful that you created us for you, for rest in you, And Jesus, we pray that as we enter into this series to follow after you, to practice what you've invited us into, that we would find rest. That our appetites would would grow for you over the next eight weeks. That we would practice the things that would actually manufacture and build this into our hearts. And we pray that you would heal us with it. I pray for us, especially those of us who struggle with just crippling anxiety or busyness of thoughts or busy bodiness that you would free us from that slavery and allow us to enter into that invitation to rest in you and that you would heal us. So today we present our, not just our, our, our thoughts, or our our words as we sing, or our prayers, but we also present our whole self, our bodies, our practices, our rhythms, and ask that you would rewire them so that it would make much of you and that we would know you. And as we respond now, I pray, Spirit, that you would apply all of this to our heart in a fresh way. I know for many of us, we we already practice these things, but I pray that you would just infuse it with a new sense of life and that you would meet us there. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.